So our Old Testament reading this morning will be from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Our text for the message today will also be from this chapter, verses 12 to the end is what we'll be looking at. Well, we'll read the whole chapter. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they will flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear is not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of what you just said? See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of for the for former things, no will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king in, over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is vanity, and the striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. And I perceive that this also is a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom there is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We often look at the problems around us and the problems of the world and wish that there was some way to fix them. Oh, if everybody would just understand what I understand, we could solve these political problems, these problems in the church, problems in our community, the problems in our lives. The problem of drugs, the problem of crime, the problem of corruption. You know, if people would just understand, it would be fixed. And then we find as we grow older, an experience sets in that we become a bit disillusioned because we can't fix it. It doesn't go away. Men don't want to understand. They don't care. And even if everybody does care, they still don't want to fix it the right way. They don't share the same idea. They don't share the same desires. And so in the end, as he says, as he concludes with 
The more he understands, the more vexation there is. The more knowledge he has, the more sorrow he has. We will look at that today. But I just wanted to point out, when I was preparing for this message, there was actually a pastor who was considered Reformed, Bible-believing at least, who said that Solomon had become very depressed and wrote these things. I was thinking to myself, does that man not understand the concept of inspiration? Solomon is not writing a nasty book out of depression and sorrow. We can find many of those in the self-help section of the bookstore. We don't need those. What we have here is Solomon, the wisest man in history, other than Christ, of course, wisdom given to him by God, using the wisdom God has given him to fulfill part of his purpose, which was to examine all the things of this world and all the things of this life and write about it for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote as he was moved along by the Holy Spirit, according to Peter. He wrote what is God-breathed, according to Paul. And when we look at this, we cannot say, oh, that is just Solomon being depressed. We need to look at it and understand it, particularly in light of what all of the Scripture says, as God speaking to us. As we've covered previously, I think this book is really looking at those things done under the sun, those things done apart from God in this world for our own self, for our own life, and showing the meaningless of that. Meaning can be found not in our wealth, not in our power, not in our wisdom, not in our popularity. Meaning in our life can only be found in Christ and in God. So before we look at the text, why don't we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, again for your mercies on us as we look into this text and look into this life and our dissatisfaction with life, and our dissatisfaction even with wisdom, because it does not accomplish the purpose for which we desire. Help us, Lord, to shift our focus, shift our viewpoint from worldly matters and worldly people to looking at eternity and understanding things from your perspective and what you're trying to say to us. We ask for your grace in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 12, he identifies himself again, the preacher, king over Israel and Jerusalem. Remember, we had looked at this a few weeks ago, when, or a few months ago now, when we first looked at this chapter. Solomon is the wisest, richest, most honored, most productive man in all of history. And he was, as I said, moved along by the Holy Spirit to examine everything done under the sun. And in this holy, inspired, God-breathed book, God is telling us through Solomon about the meaning and purpose and value of life. So his purpose in verse 13 is revealed, and it's not just the purpose of this section, but I think it's really the purpose of the whole book. And I applied my heart to seek wisdom and search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. So he's using the great wisdom God has given him to try and understand everything that goes on in the world and everything that happens in our lives and to make sense of it all. We often have that desire. I wish somebody would explain this to me. Why is this happening to me? What are we doing? Why Why did they do that and not what they should have done? Why do bad things happen? And we want more wisdom. Well, 
Solomon was wiser than any of us, and he has used that wisdom to examine everything in this world and to apply it to himself. And that wisdom that he had was beyond that of anyone else except, of course, Christ. Remember, we looked in the first message in our series that under the sun really refers to, I believe, everything done in this life on earth under heaven, everything done apart from being done for God. In fact, in this verse, he uses the phrase under heaven as opposed to heavenly things, I think. In other words, what a man does in his life from his birth to his death or till the Lord returns, his work, his wealth, his family, his faith, all of it. What does it all mean? What is it all for? Where can I find joy? Where can I find fulfillment? Where can I find purpose? Uh, For many, they find it in the wrong places. We talked recently about men who retire, how they often die within a year or two of retirement. Why? Because their purpose in life was their work, their career. And now that the career is behind them, they have nothing. Wealth, when it is lost, people who had purpose in their, was their wealth, they're, they're being rich. When they lose it, they lose everything, and they lose hope. And so, where do we find that meaning? Solomon is looking at that for us. And with wisdom greater than ours, he is explaining it to us. For some, it's study and knowledge, understanding, wisdom. But even that is insufficient, he says. He concludes his little introductory remarks by saying, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, why is it unhappy? Why would God give us unhappiness as the business of our life? Now, people reject this book and reject the scriptures because that's a premise in them that they don't want to accept and don't want to understand. Where does it come from? Well, first, it wasn't always this way. It wasn't always like that. Man walked with God in the Garden of Eden. He talked with God. He had a beautiful garden to care for. The work was pleasant. The fruit of the garden was wonderful. There was no sorrow, no troubles, no pain, no death. Nothing bad, a joyful and blessed life. Everything man did under the sun was blessed. And then man made a choice. He forsook his relationship with his creator, and he was separated from God. When God judged Adam for his sin in Genesis three seventeen through 19, he said, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The horns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you were, and dust you shall return. Judgment of God on the world was to curse it for the sin of man so that now everything in this life comes with pain and sorrow and toil. Now, it is, as as Solomon says, an unhappy business to live in this world. And it's made even more unhappy by the fact that all the people of this world are spiritually dead. 
They're lost in their sin. They, they're at enmity with God and at enmity with one another, killing and hating and hurting. And that also makes it an unhappy business to be in this life. It wasn't the original state, and it isn't going to be our final state. But it's an unhappy state for now because of sin. Remember our conclusion from back in verses 1 through 3 when we looked at that a couple of months ago? Unless the one true living God who created man, the world man lives in, and indeed everything that man can see and touch and know from a worldly perspective, unless that God is truly and rightly worshipped and served as the Creator God, everything man does, everything man has, indeed everything man desires, is nothing but vanity. Remember, vanity literally means a vapor or a breath, and figuratively, something that lacks substance, like a vapor, something with no stability, no ability. It's nothing. And so, apart from God, all we have is this world, and the state of this world is cursed. Both the people in it are evil, and the world itself is not helpful to us directly. It's through thorns and thistles and toil that we get anything out of it. So Solomon is searching through his great wisdom everything that is done really apart from God to see if there's anything good apart from God, if there's anything that can satisfy, anything that can fulfill us other than God, although he comes to God a few times in the book. In verse 14 and 15, we found out we find out the result of his search. He's looked at everything. And what does he learn from his wisdom? He has seen, he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. Now this is an interesting phrase. He's not being arrogant or proud. He's really done the work God has given him to do. All the things done by the Lord that were on earth and in it, in the sea, he considered them all, and he endeavored to search into the nature of them, and he had great knowledge and wisdom about them. In First Kings 4, 32-34, we read that he spoke 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs, and he spoke of trees from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall, and of beasts and birds and of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So he had knowledge of the natural world, of natural science, of all of God's creation. He had great knowledge to the point that kings would come to hear what he had to say. And he also examined everything that was done by man, done by his hands, done by his mind, done whether it was written or created, all of their philosophical works, all of their devices and experiments, all of their good and bad works from a moral sense. He was seeing it all and examining it all. And we see that as we read through the book. He's touching upon pretty much everything that happens in our life and in the world. He considered everything using the wisdom God gave him, which is greater than the wisdom any other man had, and then he explains it to us and considers it here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, you might say, he didn't see our day. You know, he didn't see cars, he didn't see airplanes, 
you didn't see the TV and the effect that it has on society. And therefore, you know, it's a, it's an age book and we probably should just set it aside and move on. But remember when he said back in verse 9 through the Holy Spirit, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. The latest religious fad that's going to reshape Christianity in America and make the world a better place. The latest political fad, reparations to people who never suffered anything and have had privilege their whole life. Uh, There's nothing new. There's nothing revolutionary. There's nothing they can do that will make the world a better place by bringing up failed policies of the past, by twisting them and perverting them and making them a little different. As they say in Cambodia, when you were buying counterfeit goods, oh, same, same, but different. Yes, I made the mistake of buying a pair of Breckenworth or whatever they are, sandals. Supposed to be Birkenstock sandals. Very good for your feet. I walked about 100 feet in them, and I was in pain for about a week. They only cost me $9, so I threw them away. They were real. Same, same, but different. Yeah. They come up with these new ideas, but they're really no different than what has come. You know, the, the sophistry of man never ends. The ignorance, racial justice is nothing more than racism repackaged. All of their policies of the world are like this. There's really nothing new. Now you might say, oh, you know, can I say that even of religion? What about the Reformation, Pastor Baldwin? Are you denying the value of the Reformation? And of course not. As I like to say, I'm Reformed and always reforming. The the Reformation was not about some new and better doctrines, but it was about contending for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints, Jude 3. The Reformation was about doing what the Lord said to do through Jeremiah. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Where there's a good way, where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But the Jews said to him, We will not walk in it. Jeremiah six sixteen. There's actually a new movement called the Old Paths. Did it? It's been around before. But that's the idea that we're not making new things and new and better things. We're kicking out the new and better things and getting back to the really working good stuff, the Bible, which has been around. And even though new things are revealed in Christ, they were there in God's mind before he created the world. We're not looking at anything new. We're looking for what God has said and what God has done. Being reformed is going back to the eternal truths that God has revealed in the Bible. It's not about things done under the sun, but things that are heavenly minded, if you will. Anyway, continuing in verse, continuing in the second part of verse 14, I have seen everything that was done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Not only the things that are known, but the knowledge of them themselves. It's vanity, he says. There's nothing solid, nothing substantial in it. There's nothing that can fulfill us and make us happy and make us complete. It's insubstantial. Nothing can satisfy us amongst all of the things that he examined that this world has to offer to us. On the contrary, 
They simply bring sorrow and frustration. We'll see it as we go through the book. When, well, the reality is they bring sorrow and frustration when they're apart from, from God and from God's plan and will. But it's a sad state that we look at all of these things and realize there's nothing in them, and there's nothing in them because they are corrupt. The reason is all vanity. What Solomon learned from his investigation, he reveals to us in verse 15. We've already touched on it a little bit. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot even be counted. What is crooked? Isn't it really everything? I mean, even the best of politics, don't they have problems and flaws? The best of religion, but most of it is unbelief, rebellion against God. What is crooked are conflicts with one another. I know, particularly when we were younger, we often would have thought, you know, if I just had a little more money, I could solve these problems. And if I gave everybody basic living money, let all the problems go away. No. And if I could meet all of my needs financially, wouldn't the problems go away? Wouldn't life be good? Wouldn't I be fulfilled and happy? I remember not too long after Bill Gates built his mega mansion palace that makes most of the world's king's palaces look small, he got divorced. There was no happiness found in that. Wealth cannot solve the problem. Wealth can even create the problem. Power. Oh, you know, if I only had the power and authority to get people to do what I say is right, then everything would be well. But if you look at authoritarian societies throughout history, which one of them has ever been someplace you'd want to live? You know, would you want to live under the authority of Hitler or Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot? Well, he doesn't have absolute authority, though. We think, oh, if we just had the right, the full authority, the full power to do what we think is right, then the world would be a better place and all the problems would be solved. But it never works out that way. And prestige, if people just respected me more, listened more, and did what I think is right, then things would get better. And wisdom, as he is talking about here. If I only had enough understanding, I could solve these problems. There's a way out of this pit that we're in. And if I had enough knowledge, enough understanding, enough wisdom to apply it, I could get us all out. I could save the world. And piety comes in later in the book. Oh, if I only were holy enough, if I only did all the things that God has said well enough, then it would all be well with me in my life and my soul in this world. But none of those can really solve the problem. The problem is the crookedness in our heart. It cannot be made straight. Man cannot straighten his own way. We've read before in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man's heart was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or maybe if you wiped them all out and started off with just one family that was holy, then we would continue on in holiness forever. Well, the great flood comes after that in that chapter. And what happens after the great flood? Same, same, but different. Man's heart was not changed. Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. There's not much hope. 
in theology, they use the term the noetic effect of sin. You don't need to remember that term, but the, the idea is that the sin in our lives, the corruption that we have, the spiritual death that we have through Adam, leaves our minds corrupted. And that sinful impact on our minds affects our rationality, especially when we think about God and the things relating to God. God has made himself known in general revelation to the things of the world. We can see they lead to the knowledge that has to be a creator. I remember struggling with evolution as an atheist in college, thinking, scientifically, this is absurd and impossible. Somebody told me about a creator God and tried to explain him to me, I'd have laughed at them. I would never have believed that. I could see that that wasn't satisfactory in answer. I had the wisdom and the knowledge, but because my heart was darkened with sin, I never could have come to God. I said, it is God who must have made it. But the evidence is there. There's also a special revelation in the Scripture where he reveals the details to us, the things we need to know, everything we need to be saved, everything we need to be reconciled with him, everything he desires of us to do. We have that. But his revelation, both is general and special, it really disrupts the mind of men. When we, it confronts our wrong thoughts, it calls us to conformity to his will, and though God's revelation is clear, man, because of his sinfulness, man, because of his re- rebellion, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. And as a result of our continuing sin, our foolish hearts are darkened, Romans 1.21. Confronted with the revelation of God, people don't accept it. When they have a negative negative relationship with God, they will deny his existence, Psalm 14.1, or turn him into, look at him as a creature, which was there in Romans 1.22-25. Instead of worshiping the Creator, they worship things they make up. Thankfully, we're not left in that terrible darkness of those who have been born again, who have had that heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh put in, who have had the Spirit of God put in, are regenerate, have a slightly different view. And I say slightly because what we are told to not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 12, 2. And we're told to put off the former manner of life and its corrupt and deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of our minds, but on the new self created in the likeness of God and the true and true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 22-24. You know, we have this transformation in our lives that we're called to work on and to perfect. But note that it is, it is a process. We call it sanctification from a theological point of view, the, the process of going from being more corrupt to being less corrupt, being less perfect to more perfect. Some have mistakenly thought that, oh, you know, now the noetic effect of sin is gone. Our minds are able to perfectly understand the truth of God, the righteousness of God. And we can look at the world and the Christian sees it perfectly as far as, you know, without this corruption, the the tinted glasses of corruption on. But that was never the case in Scripture. 
Paul admits that not a, I have not already obtained it or am already a perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward calling of Christ Jesus. So the goal of our whole life is that pressing on towards that perfection, perfection that we do not attain in this life. The Christian continues to misunderstand and misinterpret even the things of the Bible because their heart is not perfect yet and is tainted by sin, and that taint of sin changes the way we perceive things, the way we understand things. And so wisdom is not alone enough because we can't make what is crooked straight. It can't be done in our power, in our knowledge, because our knowledge is on the basis of corruption. We don't see that corruption well enough in ourselves, but we haven't reckoned with it well enough to really be able to understand and to move. Because that's corruption corrupted, we can never move in the right direction. You know, many people who know they have a problem in life want to change, but they don't always know what they want to change into. And even the Christian may struggle with that. Oh, I want to be less angry or more holy or you know, more humble. But they don't really have a good perception of what that means and where they are lacking in it because our sin blinds us. It deceives us. The easiest person to lie to in the world is ourself. The other issue, though, that comes up in this thought of why we are so struggling with the world is that God in his providence doesn't always do what we want him to do. His providence is not always happiness for us. It's not always joy for us. It's not always the comfortable life. It's not always even the logical, I did this and this happened, doesn't always work out. And thus, our desire to bend God's providence and God's will to suit our desires leaves us with this added frustration. And the reason for that is, again, the focus is not on heaven and God in eternity, but it is on this fallen world, our desire to get what we want out of it in the here and now. So thus, everything that is done under the sun, everything that is done apart from God is like that Vanity is like that vapor that disappears. And Solomon has come to that conclusion and given us the reasoning for what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now what does it mean lacking cannot be counted? It means there are so many things we need to be perfect that you can't even count them. That we can make a short list of character traits that we really need to have that we don't have, of things we need to have that we don't have, but the list is uncountable in reality. There's so much we need to work on. So Solomon has come to that conclusion, and now he examines really the result of it all and the result of the wisdom itself that he has. 
and that is in verse 16 through 18. It starts with, really, I think, some self-examination. I said, in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. Now, if somebody were to write that, normally you'd think they're being vain and arrogant and foolish. But this is him speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is a reality. God promised him wisdom to rule. Well, he asked God for wisdom to rule over God's people. And God promised him wisdom beyond that of any other man. And he's just stating the truth, because that's a truth we really need to understand. Yeah, being humble is not saying, not the wisest man in the world claiming to not be wise. Uh, being humble is not putting himself above others and not listening to them and not denying their needs or their rights because he's superior. Uh, we should never make that mistake of thinking being humble is to say, I'm no good when you're very good. That's not what it means. The level of wisdom that God had given him, the level of wisdom that was surpassing everyone else, was needed in the writing of this book. And so God gave it to him as part of his preparation of Solomon to write this book. Our understanding of inspiration is not that God took a man and he closed his eyes and wrote everything out, which is what the cults often claim, but that God prepared their life through providence, their education, their, their heart even, trained them so that when the time came for them to write, they would write what God wanted them to write. And as Jesus points out, even the least stroke of the pen and the smallest letter are all inspired to that level and will not change because it is what God has wanted to write. So Solomon has this level of wisdom, and it is written in the book that God wanted him to write. And as far as his pride goes, I think God humbled him pretty well in writing this book. As if you read through this book, Solomon is not saying, my great wisdom has made me great. He is saying, my great wisdom has made me tormented. And that's the conclusion here in this verses 16 through 18, is that all the wisdom that he had was not enough for what it need, for what he needed. It says in verse 17 that he applied his heart to know this wisdom and also to know folly and madness. Now, it's easy to understand why he would want wisdom to investigate all the things of the world, but why folly and madness? Well, you know your wisdom more by knowing the opposite. I remember somebody talking about counterfeit money once and said treasury agents are not given piles of counterfeit money to examine so they can find counterfeit money. They're given piles of real money of all ages and they're to feel it and snap it and smell it and bend it and fold it so that they know what the reality is and then when they see that what isn't real, they recognize it. But then they also look at the fake money, understanding the various ways they fake things and the things that are wrong with it so that they can understand. So there's, a, there's wisdom in looking at the opposite, looking at foolishness and madness. If wisdom isn't alone enough to do it, you can also see this as, if he knows madness, can madness do it? Can foolishness do it? What I mean by that is, you know, if I live in a fantasy world, a fantasy world in which you know Marxism works, or a fantasy world of TV, sci-fi, or Harry Potter, they're all about the same in my mind, by the way. Um, you know, 
can I find my fulfillment there? There are people who spend their whole lives living in that kind of a world. We, we've mentioned it before, but you know, people are now putting Jedi down as their religion, and they, they walk around dressed like Star Wars characters, and they go to conventions. Can that take care of their need? Can that fulfill their need and give them a good life in this world? Some think it does, but I would say no. And can my foolishness in thinking that up is down and down is up because I believe that, therefore it is, can that really solve the problems? Uh, we see that a lot in our modern politics where people are making the most bizarre, unbelievable statements and people are jumping on. Yes, if that's true, then everything will be better. So we declare that to be true. But is that kind of madness a solution? No. In verse 18, he wraps this section up. Wisdom was not the answer. For in much wisdom, there's much vexation, bitterness and anger and all of that. And the one who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That might sound very cynical, but as I mentioned before, when we were children, the more we understood how the world works, the more we understood how this present dark age works, the more wisdom we have, the more knowledge we have in that regard, what happens? Well, the more cynical we become, the more miserable we become. It's all hopeless. We, we mentioned philosophies when I first started this section. It, it all leads to that nihilism. There's no value in anything. There's nothing useful. There's nothing real. There's nothing good. Why? Because the more we examine everything, the more we see it's just being a problem. How can you have a world which everything is falling apart? How can you have a world in which creatures are becoming extinct one after another and can't save them? How, how can you have a world where every time you correct a disease, a new one pops up? And if you look at the history of particularly STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, each time one comes up and becomes a plague and a cure is found, another one comes up and then another one and another one. Look at crops. They're doing now genetic manipulation to try and make crops resistant to diseases. But in the end, the, the disease-resistant ones will just get a new disease. How can the world be like that? And study the second law of thermodynamics. The, the more things change, the more chaos is introduced through change, and eventually the entire universe will die because everything will have become more and more disorganized over time. And young science students in, in college have that crisis of faith at that point. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of the universe? Reality, the more you understand it, apart from God, the more bizarre and pointless and hopeless it seems. If you understand that the world was cursed, and that's why all of those things are like that, and you understand that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where it isn't cursed, then you have great hope. But if your only hope is in this present world, the more you know, the more miserable you become. But that's not even the entirety of it. You know, that youthful hope we had, I mentioned earlier, everything could be made right if, if only. The more experienced we become, the more we say, no, that won't work. 
And who are the most fanatical followers of things like Marxism? Children, teenagers, college students. Who are the most fanatical followers of the environmental movement and now the global warming movement? You know, children, why? Because they, they easily buy into the delusion that if only everything would be well. Not understanding the reality of the world, the true reality of the world. And so they become hopeless. And they see their youthful delusions collapse and they, the more I know, the more wisdom I have, the more knowledge I have, the more sorrow, the more vexation I have. But I think it was true also for Solomon. You know, he understood God. He understood reality. It's true for the Christian. The more we know about this world, the more sorrows we have for the same reasons. Not because we want, we, we lose our hope in fixing them, but because we realize more and more that that is what this present age is. That is what our sin has brought us. That is when our life is going to be here. And we realize that what is bent, what is crooked, we can't make it straight. There's nothing I can do to help a corrupt politician or a criminal or any sinner, any evil person. There's nothing I can do to fix their heart to make them know God. I can share the truth with them, and God can do it. You know, I can, I can plant and or I can water, but only God gives the growth. So the more about the world we know, the more we understand about life, the more we understand about the reality of you know, politics and religion, and the more you read, the more you study, the more sorrow you have. You get to see. And you think, if you were to go out and read all the writings of the good denominations and their pastors and listen to their sermons, and it would be a great, a great thing and an encouragement. But the more you do, the more problems you find. Oh, this, sin, this thing has crept into the church, or this thing has crept in, or this other sin, or this heresy, or this weird belief. Now, the more you know, the more sin you see. And we see it in ourselves, right? When we first become Christians, we think, I've got sin under control. And the longer we're a Christian, the more problems. The further we see, we need to go to get to the goal. In fact, it often seems throughout our Christian life that the goal that we thought we were almost at when we first believed, we now are looking at the horizon trying to find the goalpost. It seems further away because as our knowledge grows of God, you know, our sorrows grow as we see our lack of being godly. And so I think all of that's included in this summary verse with much wisdom comes much vexation. With much knowledge comes much sorrow. The more I read about what's going on in the churches of the, the time, the more sorrowful I become. The more I read in politics about what's happening in our country, the more sorrowful I become. The more I understand how it works and why, the more sorrowful and the more angry I become. That's just how it is. However, thankfully it doesn't stop there, right? If you jump to the end of the book, sometimes, yeah, in a tough book you got to read the end, right? And you start reading the Bible and you get to the, even just the historical sections. By the time you finish Judges, it's pretty depressing. 
So you jump to the end of the book, and you read about the new heaven and the new earth. Well, even in this little book of Ecclesiastes, you jump to the end of the book. He says in chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, For the end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. There will be a judgment. Evil will receive what evil is, deserves. Godly will receive mercy and blessing for all the good that they do. So, given that there's a judgment and given there's an eternity in a new heaven and a new earth, as I mentioned, if our focus is on those things, then we don't have to become discouraged and depressed, and we can see value in all of these things. The value of wisdom is talked about later in the book, so I won't get it there, but if we use our wisdom, our, our wealth, our power, our prestige, our piety, the strong treasure for ourselves in heaven, then we're making good use of the time, and we will not be, oh, everything I do is meaningless. It's only meaningless if I do it for myself. If I do it for God's kingdom and God's glory, then it has meaning. And I can, I can have, find my fulfillment in doing it for him. So I want to wrap up just with the final thought about our use of wisdom. The Christian needs to understand the right use of wisdom. And the first is the limitations of it. You know, we are not all wise and all knowing. In fact, we are not perfect in our purity. We do not have all the right answers and the right decisions. Only Paul, only God is. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways, meaning how unable to understand them. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? But through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. We're not the all-wise, all-knowing one God is. Heavenly wisdom can help us make the right decisions, as we've read earlier in Romans twelve two. You know, we're not we're to by testing discern what is the will of God, by testing against Scripture, by testing against what is right and what is wrong. And if we do that, then we can have some some knowledge, some wisdom, as Solomon talks about. But if we use that for him, for his kingdom and glory, then it isn't just vexation and just sorrow. It is the ability to please God and to seek God, and there is fulfillment in that. Also, we need to remember that wisdom cannot bring us that peaceful, comfortable life that we really want. Wisdom will not bring us to heaven on flowery beds of ease. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke nine twenty three. God's will for us is to use our wisdom to overcome the trials of this life, which is why James says in his first chapter, if you face trials, he goes on to say, if he lacks wisdom, let him seek it from God, and God will give it to him. And wisdom can help us overcome the trials of this life, not bring us to heaven on flowery beds of ease. Also, our sanctification and our holiness, wisdom can help us get there. 
to improve ourselves. But it is not the be-all than the end-all, because without the Spirit of God, there is no spiritual growth. So we need to remember that our will, our desires, our mind is still corrupted enough that what we want is what we believe, what we desire is not always what God wants. And we should look to him and his word. Anyway, if we use our wisdom rightly for God's kingdom, for God's glory, not for our own glory, not for our own kingdom, not for our own comfort, then there will be meaning in what we do for him. And that right focus is really the main point. It's about, if I'm living for this life in this world, then the wisdom of this world is not going to be of any value. But if I live living for God, living for eternity, wisdom, heavenly wisdom, right wisdom, true wisdom, can give me what I need to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. And by focusing on him, I don't have despair. Yes, America is falling apart. Yes, the modern church is falling apart. But God is sovereign. God has a plan. And God has written down what will happen in the end. So we know it will come. We know the day of the Lord will come. We know that the wicked will be punished and the good will be rewarded, that we do and that we will have eternity with him in heaven. And we don't have the despair that many people find in this book. It's a reminder step by step Wisdom is not going to get it for you. Turn to God. Turn away from the world. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for <clears throat> giving Solomon the wisdom to examine all things, to discover all things, and to speak of them to us. We thank you for this little introductory summary to the rest of the book. He has checked everything out using the wisdom you gave him, and he has made his answer. And we, Lord, can still find hope and joy and satisfaction in our life if we live our lives for you. Help us, Lord, to turn away from the petty cares and desires of this world and turn to you to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.